Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is Solvable. I'm Ronald Young Jr. We have a whole generation that have grown up as virtual shoplifters, pirating music, pirating movies. By the time they're in college, they're pirating crack software. So for that cohort, the line between right and wrong becomes a little blurred. I went to college in 2002. Back then, we were still on Black Planet, using LiveJournal, exchanging AOL screen names, and leaving up pointed emo song lyrics as a subliminal away message for the crush who broke our hearts. And I was also a virtual shoplifter. Before we had music streamers, before Apple Music and Spotify, we downloaded everything from what were called peer-to-peer networks. Music, movies, that hot new Warcraft game we wanted to play. And for poor college students, this was just the exciting new way of experiencing the world. We didn't say anything wrong with what we were doing. It was predicted that this year, cybercrime would cost the global economy just over one trillion U.S. dollars. To put that in perspective, that's like over six million Teslas being stolen, $150,000 each, or approximately three Hope Diamonds valued at $350 million. It's just about equal to the entire infrastructure bill President Biden just signed into law. Some estimate that if cybercrime is not addressed, it could cost the global economy over $10 trillion by 2025. It would seem that with every advancement in technology, criminals and opportunists find a new way to exploit it. The pace of technological innovation seems to move too fast for regulations to keep up. And not everyone is on board with all the ways we could bring order to the madness right now. 
when I talk to people about surveillance, they get really upset about this. And they're like, I don't want any government or any law enforcement agency practicing surveillance because I don't want to be surveilled. But you are being surveilled by social technology companies. You are offering everything up. They can practically predict what color socks you're going to wear tomorrow. It's just surveillance by a different entity. Dr. Mary Aiken is an expert in forensic cyber psychology, which is the study of criminal, deviant, and abnormal behavior online. So that means, unfortunately, she's kept pretty busy. In addition, she's a researcher and teacher and an academic advisor to Europol, their cybercrime center, the EC3, and she's a member of the Interpol Global Cybercrime Expert Group. She's doing a lot. I'm not overwhelmed. I maintain my sense of humor. I remain optimistic. Cybercrime and online harms are solvable. In 2016, NATO ratified cyberspace as an environment, acknowledging that the wars of the future would take place on land, sea, air, and on computer networks. This is a space. And this space comes with incredible opportunities, but also risks. And I would argue that cybercrime and online harms are solvable problems if we understand the cyber behavioral dynamics in this space. So let's think about it like an iceberg. Whatever search engine they're using, like Google or Safari or Yahoo, that's what we call the surface web. And that's between 1% and 3% of the internet. It's the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And then you have the whole part of the internet, which is what we call what lies beneath. And that's Mm. the deep web. And certainly the space helps to facilitate cybercriminal behavior. And what happens is that human behavior mutates or changes in this environment. So anonymity is a powerful psychological driver. In other words, it's a superhuman power. Mm. It is the age old mythical power of invisibility. And that comes with tremendous responsibility. So let's take anonymity. And often I debate on this topic. People will push back and say, oh, no, no, no. We can't do anything to change anonymity online because anonymity is a basic fundamental human right. No, it is not. And yes, we want people in oppressed regimes to be able to post or blog or you know do whatever they want, but at what cost? And if the cost of that is cyber fraud and cyber crime and exploitation and coercion and extortion and what is described as revenge porn and all the things that we see that are going wrong online, then maybe mm-hmm. the cost is too high. Now, before you get too far into that, let mm-hmm. me let me back up for a second. I liked what you said about anonymity uh, as being one of the the vulnerabilities of and the pitfalls between the human technology relationship. What are some other big vulnerabilities of the human technology relationship besides anonymity? Well, you have the online disinhibition effect, and it dictates that people will do things online that they will not do in the real world. So it's mm. like a form of 
inebriation or being drunk online. So what you see is that human behavior changes. You can also see more vulnerability expressed online. Hypochondria is excessive concerns about your symptoms. Cyberchondria is you have a headache, which could be from too much coffee or it could be a hangover, and you start Googling symptoms about your headache and you end up reading about brain tumor and you mm-hmm. start feeling anxiety as a result. That sounds familiar. <laughs> so you might be perfectly well, but end up with a nasty case of health anxiety as a result of careless search, escalation during search. So with the pandemic, we had the infodemic. This information overload which actually increased people's anxiety in the general population. Mm-hmm. And what we saw was that cyber criminals are incredibly adaptable and agile. They tapped into that anxiety by creating mm-hmm. malicious URLs or malicious links, offering you discount personal protection equipment, mm-hmm. offering you a vaccine, click here, before vaccines were even readily available, offering you all sorts of cures. So people are anxious. They want to protect themselves and their families. So therefore, they're more likely to click on a link and compromise their tech. And that's how the cyber criminals moved in. This doesn't feel different or that different from how crime and scams happen even when they were analog, you know, before they went digital, because we're talking about like things like, you know, snake oil um, mm-hmm. and, and what you're talking about and opportunism and people using vulnerable periods of time in which to actually enact a crime or to make someone a victim. In this case, it feels like the existence of this sort of technology, the existence of the Internet creates a space for constant vulnerability. It makes it much easier It opens up the uh, range of victims from you weren't going to you weren't going to fly halfway across the world to target somebody, burgle their house and fly all the way back. But you can do that online. And what you know, your point about this feels like, you know, old school crime. I would argue that in an age of technology, it's almost impossible to commit a crime that doesn't have some technology component to it. Mm-hmm. In 2020, so last year, it was predicted that this year, cybercrime would cost the global economy just over 1 trillion US dollars. It's predicted going forward that by 2025, the cost of cybercrime is going to be over $10 trillion. Do you think that the same people who would commit regular crime are the same people who will commit cybercrime? Again, it's complicated. You have existing hardcore organized crime groups who mm-hmm. look at technology as a faster, better, you know, cheaper way of conducting regular crime. You then have a group of people who are 
not career criminals, but sort of get involved in using technology to engage in sort of entry-level crime. Because we have a whole generation that have grown up as virtual shoplifters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they've been pirating music, you know, Correct. like at 9, 10, 11, and they are pirating movies. movies. By the time they're in college, they're pirating crack software. So for that cohort, the line between right and wrong becomes a little blurred. Yes. And you're in problem with your finances. And somebody says, look, there's this great scheme whereby you can sign up to be a some sort of logistics person for a corporation. All you've got to do is open a bank account. They put $10,000 in. Then you just have to transfer it on somewhere else and you get to keep $1,000. And you might know there feels like there's something real wrong with that, but it's a fast way to make money and I need to pay my rent. Now, to be clear, you know, that's money laundering. It's a crime. So I think there's that cohort growing up where the boundaries are blurred. And that's where we've really got to educate. And then I think you've got another cohort who are young entrepreneurs, but they're cyber criminal entrepreneurs. This is a career path. And then you also have activists, you've hacktivists, you have state-sponsored and state-condoned actors. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a wide range of people engaging in harmful and criminal behavior in cyberspace. What's the next step? What do we do? What happens in cyberspace impacts on the real world. What happens in the real world impacts on cyberspace. So this is continuous relationship between the two. I think the first thing is that we've got to really think about governance and policing in cyberspace. And what we see from a law enforcement point of view is that law enforcement started in the real world. And as technology has evolved, law enforcement has tried to evolve to keep up with technology. But that presents a lot of challenges. For example, the encryption debate. You remember all that? The Apple, you know, hack me if you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Law enforcement wanted Apple to hand them uh, <laughs> encrypted data and Apple refused to do it because they said, this is our thing. It's encrypted. If you want to hack it, you can get it, but we're not just going to hand you encrypted data from our customers. There was all sorts of issues about that, about backdoors, about encryption. But these are really important issues to talk about as a society because we want law enforcement to deliver on safety and security in the real world, how are they going to deliver on safety and security in cyberspace when there exist encrypted domains that are effectively operating beyond the law? And if we accept as a relationship between the two, then it's going to continue to be more and more complicated going forward. So, you know, we have to be involved, have a voice in the governance of this space, just the way we have a voice in the governance of the real world. I am listening to you talk about policing and in and I think 
that there definitely is a way to to regulate, especially criminal activity online. I was a victim of a cybercrime, and it occurred to me that there was really no way that I could ever catch this person or or, uh, or chase them down uh, based on on what had happened. So it was, and it was, it felt I felt pretty helpless at the time. I will say also, I was a victim of a real crime in which my car was broken into and my bag was stolen, and the police were not very much help in that case either. I knew there was no way they were going to be able to catch this person and chase them down. I felt the same in both in both scenarios. The other part of this is, historically, for some marginalized groups, policing has been a problematic conversation. And so even when we're talking about it now, there's a part of me that's like, ah, I don't know who I want regulating this online, especially when, you know, historically there has been, uh, you know, racism, misogyny, uh, homophobia, all those things involved in policing, also taking part in defining what crime is, uh, which is a, a whole other conversation. So how do we regulate and actually catch criminals, catch cyber criminals without also overcorrecting in a way that continues to oppress the marginalized groups that continually feel oppressed by unjust policing. Ronald, you're right about policing and racism and all this stuff that's going down. So I'm trying not to be prescriptive there. Uh, And you don't want a non-national telling Americans how to govern themselves either. I'm sensitive to that. So I think that that's why we need to have the conversation. And the conversation might be, we don't need any police on the internet. That might be, (laughs) if we want to have a conversation, then everything should be on the table. For example, we could say, well, how about the companies who profit in this space? How about they Mm -hmm. police or govern? Let's not use the word police. Let's say govern cyberspace. Because this is the problem. You have huge corporations that ultimately lie under the radar and may have aspirations of statehood operating Mm -hmm. in cyberspace. And, and and law enforcement, this thinly stretched resource, trying to clean up, you know, as they go along. And, and what's happening in countries like the UK, I work closely with government there, and we have a new piece of legislation coming through called the Online Safety Bill. And it's going to force a duty of care for those corporations who profit in cyberspace. So let's take crimes like cyberbullying or harassment or what is described as revenge porn, and let's make these companies responsible for cleaning that up. Then let's take myths and disinformation. And while that's not criminal activity per se, it can certainly Mm -hmm. lead to racist attacks and it can lead to all sorts of threats and it can, hate Mm -hmm. speech can lead to, when you know, this is a broad spectrum of what we describe as online harm. But are these issues policing issues or are these Mm -hmm. civil society issues? And let's think about, for example, child pornography. If you have a young person who's sexually curious and they're 11 or 12 or 13 and they take an image and they send it to their boyfriend or girlfriend who's also 13 or 14, if you've generated an image and it's explicit and you are underage, then de facto you are generating and distributing child pornography, albeit of yourself. Uh That doesn't make sense to criminalize that behavior. So let's take all of that behavior and think, is this a police issue or is this an issue that needs to be dealt with separately? 
And then if you look at youth hackers, you know, if you've got a tech talented youth upstairs in the bedroom of their parents' home, and if that kid becomes curious and starts probing around the edges of a network and then breaches accidentally or through curiosity, is that child a hacker? Or is that somebody who needs to be educated? You know, if we can't identify tech talent and young people, how can we stage interventions? We have IQ, we have EQ, we have CQ, we have no TQ, no technology quotient. So we can't screen from them, we can't identify them, we can't educate them, we can't stage intervention. But what we can do is when they're 14 or 15 is prosecute them. It, it sounds like you're saying that there's multiple uh, ways that we need to examine the behavior that's happening online. And then we need to also define what criminal activity is and who can be criminals online. And then three, we need to regulate it. We then need to regulate that behavior. Am I mischaracterizing that as being the solution? No, I, I, I think that's fair. And we have a chance here to renegotiate the social contract that has existed for thousands of years and more recently in the US. I'm European, so I can say thousands. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But the social contract, we can talk about that. We can say, right, let's take online harms, this range of undesirable behaviors, harmful behaviors, in some cases, criminal behaviors. Well, how about we make Facebook or Twitter or Instagram responsible for that? And say, guys, you profit in this space. And in fact, many of your technologies exacerbate these problems. So you go figure and go deal with that. Then let's take young people and what they do, what we describe as uh, juvenile cyber delinquency, pathways into cybercrime. And let's deal with them separately and not criminalize young people who are tech curious who don't have parents who can teach them, who don't have teachers who are as knowledgeable about technology as they are, and let's deal with them separately. And then let's look at technology solutions to technology-facilitated problem behaviors, because we can't solve this with human intervention. We're going to need AI, artificial intelligence, and ML, machine learning solutions, because there's just too much stuff happening. But we have to be able to equip law enforcement to carry out investigations, to actually deal with issues around encryption, to deal with issues around privacy and surveillance. And you, when I talk to people about surveillance, they get really upset about this. And they're like, I don't want any government or any law enforcement agency practicing surveillance because I don't want to be surveilled. But you are being surveilled by social technology companies. You are offering everything up. They can practically predict what color socks you're going to wear tomorrow. It's just surveillance by a different entity, by people who are not elected, by people who don't have a duty of care, who don't have a mandate. Are you are you optimistic that this is going to be solved? Because I, I, I hear you talking through a lot of theories. Are you optimistic about the actionable steps? I am increasingly optimistic. If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said no. (laughs) Mm. I'm increasingly optimistic for a couple of reasons. One, I understand cyber behavioral science. Secondly, I work closely with law enforcement, with policymakers, and I'm solutions focused. And thirdly, 
class and group actions. This is the money piece. We've been here before. Cigarettes, asbestos. Mm-hmm. There is going to come a point when the social technology companies who are responsible for some of these harms are going to have to do better. And they won't do better because we tell them to, and they won't do better because the government asks them to do better. They will do better when it financially hurts them not to do so. And I think that gives people hope. And we always want to, to you know, humans need hope. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. This event sounds like your thing. I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Dr. Aiken, you talked about asking companies that profit in this space to take action to regulate themselves. You mentioned Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I'll add YouTube and 4chan and 8chan, all places where disinformation can flourish. And I have to say, I'm not so impressed with their self-regulating so far. I mean, when I think about uh, January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol, uh, which happened just earlier this year, I get emotional. I'm, I'm angry. I'm just like... Y'all have to be responsible for this disinformation. And I mean, that's easy for me to say from a soapbox, y'all need to regulate this. But how are you feeling about this as an expert in cybercrime and criminal psychology? I think, and this is just my opinion, I think they know a lot more than they admit to. Mm. I think social media companies have their finger on the pulse of the Internet. I think mm-hmm. they know long before any of us when something is moving. Mm-hmm. That said, can they admit that? They should. And when you talk about the events of Capitol Hill, what we saw there was very interesting in terms of cyber psychology. I mean, tragic, but interesting, because that's the first real world example of what happens when the online world facilitates the normalization and socialization of fake news, of misinformation, syndicates to bring people together, uh, creates virtual echo chambers to reinforce and normalize and socialize belief systems. And then that explodes into the real world with tragic consequences. And I think that got the attention of all agencies. In fact, the day after it happened, I got a call from a senior person in a US agency who said, Mary, you stood in front of us five years ago and told us this would happen, and it did. And I just wanted to say that you were right. So I don't want to be right after the fact. I want to say this is eminently predictable. This is a very, very powerful tool, technology, the internet, the connectivity. And people ask me about causation. You know, they say, Does the internet cause bad behavior, online harms, criminal behavior? And there's two ways of looking at this. So what we can say is the connectivity, how we are connected with each other, afforded by technology, we can say, yeah, maybe that causes bad behavior. Maybe it causes us to do things that we would normally not have done. Or maybe what it's doing is shining a very bright light into the darkest reaches of the human psyche, what Jung called Mm. the two million year old man or woman. And maybe we're all just Game of Thrones underneath it all. Dr. Akid, you are blowing my mind. I just, I wanna end on a, a, a lighter note. There's a show called CSI Cyber where Patricia Arquette plays a character based off of you. How does that feel? 
<laughs> Incredible. I, I'm going to write another book and I'm going to write a book about how to get ahead in Hollywood without even trying. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have survivor's guilt for all the authors and the people who pitch TV shows and I know how hard they work. I had one, yeah. one meeting, one meeting. Yeah. And they commissioned the show on the spot. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. That was it. And and I had one meeting with CBS and um the head of broadcasting and entertainment. It was 15 yeah. minutes. It turned into three hours. They stood up at the end of the meeting. The the CBS lead looked left and right and said, Are we all agreed? And then they looked at me and they said, We want to make a TV show, CSI Cyber, based on you. And I issued the immortal words, Can I get back to you? I didn't know. I- <laughs> CBS called me back like into a it. meeting and they said, um, they said, we're, yeah. we're going to make you a producer on the show. Hey, I didn't know what it meant though. So I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. And they, and they said, is this a negotiation strategy? And I said, no, I just don't have that sort of money. And they're like, no, no, we don't want your money. We want to give you more money. <laughs> <laughs> I'd only ever seen the movie The Producers, you know, where they were trying to raise money for the yeah. show, and and yeah. I just thought they were asking me for money. So they tell <laughs> they tell that story. I was the first person they'd ever offered this deal to, and I was like, no, thank you, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Doctor Aiken, before we wrap, I want to ask you about what listeners can do to get more involved. You've invited them to the conversation, but what would that look like? I think we have to think about global solutions because cyberspace is a global construct. But I think equally, we have to be respectful of national criteria, of cultural differences in different countries who want to approach cyberspace in their own way for their own population. So I think that you have Solutions that are local, country by country. And then you have agreed solutions in shared spaces in cyberspace. We have maritime law for shared waters. We have aviation law for the shared airspace. So I think there are basic things we can agree on. And then there's some things that will need to be legislated country by country. I would ask listeners to reach out to their local legislators, their local politicians. There are a number of bills that are being debated at the moment in the U.S., for example, Senator Warner's Safe Tech Bill, which will address some of these issues. So get involved. Become an activist in cyberspace, a good activist. (laughs) One thing that I can mention is that for any listener that is now fascinated by cyber psychology in the way that I am, we are offering the world's first online masters at Capital Tech and online PhD in cyber psychology. So if you feel like you want to complete your education, reach out to us online. Dr. Aiken, this has been a great conversation, very eye-opening. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ronald. Absolutely enjoyed it. Dr. Mary Aiken is a cyber psychologist and chair of the Department of Cyber Psychology at Capital Technology University in Laurel, Maryland. You can find links to her recent publications about cybercrime and to the degree program she mentioned in our show notes. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Research by David Ja. 
Booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Sasha Mathias, and our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Thanks for listening. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.